Our doctor is in, and so are the doctors of Capital Health. Welcome to the all-new Health 411. Every Sunday morning at 10, Dr. Jonathan Karp, along with our respected panel of guests from Capital Health, take you on an important medical journey to help you navigate your health and the healthcare system. To reach your destination, good health. Health 411 is underwritten by Capital Health. Minds advancing medicine. Capital Health is the region's leader in providing progressive quality patient care with exceptional physicians, nurses, and staff, as well as advanced technology. 1077 The Bronx. 1077thebronc.com proudly nominated for a National Association of Broadcasters 2019 and 2021 Marconi Award for Best College Radio Station. We are broadcasting from the Bronx All Digital Studios on the campus of Ryder University in Lawrenceville, New Jersey. Welcome to this Health 411 program. I'm your host, Professor Jonathan Karp. This Health 411 program is presented by Capital Health Medical Center. In Health 411, we discuss a variety of issues affecting health and wellness, public health, healthcare policy, and the science of health and healthcare. Our goal is to expand your knowledge and perspective. Today, we are recording with our student producer, Daniel Geller, and our guests. We have two guests today. We have Dr. Sherry Gills Funderbuck. Dr. Funderbuck is a physician at Capital Health Medical Center. She's a director of diabetes education and the Diabetes Task Force. And joining Dr. Funderbuck is Lauren Morin. Lauren is a nurse. She is a certified diabetes care and education specialist, and she is the co program coordinator for diabetes education at Capital Health. Welcome to our program. Thank you for having Thank me. Thank you. And let me start off, and I'll, I guess I'll start with you, Dr. Funderbrook. I am I'm one of my many hats here in, um, at Ryder University. I'm the pre-med advisor, and I have yet to have a student come to me and say, I want to be a physician who's an endocrinologist who specializes in, diabe specializes in diabetes. Maybe you were that special one, but how did you find your specialty along your path? Um, well, I guess I had a, a pretty circuitous uh, uh, path into medicine just to begin with. Um, I, you know, definitely didn't decide to be a physician until I was late in my uh, college uh, career. Ended up actually going to graduate school for exercise physiology um, before I started medical school because I was uh, kind of late deciding. Um, and basically, during medical school, my uh, more so third and fourth year, as I was going through the different rotations, um, I knew I wanted to do internal medicine, um, but within internal medicine, um, you know, subspecializing was also something I knew what I wanted to do, but kind of had to try out the different uh, uh, subspecialties and definitely endocrinology just because of personal experience with family members and just because uh, endocrinology, you know, is very much so um, uh, pathways and not necessarily memorization things, kind of things were intuitive and, um, you know, feedback mechanisms that I really enjoyed. And so that combination, um, uh, work-life balance was also um, very nice with endocrinology. I kind of decided uh, that that was my path and definitely have absolutely no regrets. Excellent. So endocrinology found you. Yes, <laughs> a, I like to use the analogy of what happens with, you know, in the world of like, Harry Potter. The wand chooses you. Um, and, and, and Laura, you're the diabetes educator. Did you start off saying, I want to teach people about diabetes, or how did you find it? So same idea. It kind of found me. Um, I was working actually in cardiology for a long time, bounced around to a different ho uh, few hospitals, and um, I came to Capital Health working 
for that work-life balance, working per diem in the wound care department. And I found that a number of patients with chronic wounds also had diabetes and a door opened there and I walked through the door and I've never looked back. I started uh, learning more about diabetes and then I became a, a certified diabetes care and education specialist. Excellent. I'm really happy with what I do. Excellent. So I always say this, Dan, for students who are listening, keep your options open because you never know what's going to happen to you. And mm -hmm. I think both of our guests are happy in what they're doing. Yes, and for they had, sure. They had open minds to try to find their career path. Now, let, let's start off very, very broad before we jump into any, um, before we get too reductionistic here. And we're talking about diabetes. And so I'm gonna ask the question, because diabetes is lots of different things. So um, who wants to tackle it? If I ask the question, what is diabetes? What are we talking about here for the, today's program? Uh -huh. You wanna go first, Dr. Gillis? Or sure. Okay. Sure. So diabetes is basically when your body's not able to uh, metabolize, dispose of uh, glucose from your blood. And so it basically has uh, two large groups. Um, we say type one um, and type two diabetes. And patients who have type one diabetes, their bodies basically do not produce insulin at all. Whereas type two diabetes is initially that there's insulin um, resistance. And so uh, they produce insulin, but um, they actually produce excess insulin, but their body's just very resistant to it. Um, and then over time, they actually have decreased production in insulin as well. Um, we always, uh, you know, say kind of type 1 versus type 2, but we definitely know that, uh, especially with type 2 diabetes, uh, it's a whole array um, as far as the different things that uh, can be affected. Um, but those are the two uh, broad categories, um, those who don't produce insulin at all and then those who are resistant to the insulin initially. So the underlying mechanism, the physiology of those two types of diabetes would be very, very different. Is that true? Yes. How are they different? Um, so when someone has type 1 diabetes and their body doesn't produce insulin at all, they absolutely have to have insulin from an outside source in order to get the glucose into their cells. So for type 1 diabetes, it's basically life-sustaining for them to take insulin. If they don't have insulin for just a few hours, they can go into um, dangerous um, buildup of acid in their system and, and you know, basically be fatal. Uh, whereas type 2, again, because there's this insulin resistance, the sugars might be high, and over time, you know, there can be uh, damage to organs. But um, often it's not something if they don't have their insulin for, you know, a day or a couple of days, you know, even weeks, that it's going to be, um, you know, uh, fatal. Um, definitely those um, with type 2 can end up having severe um, problems when their sugars get very high as well. Um, but it's something that, you know, uh, generally it's not, again, going to be immediately um, dangerous. Okay. Uh, and we were going to, we will get into those details. Sometimes when people talk about um, diabetes, they talk about it having an autoimmune component or a metabolic component. Is that, is, mm -hmm. How does that relate to the two kinds of, the families of diabetes that you talked about? Um, so the autoimmune, um, that's when we think about type 1. So basically there's a destruction of the uh, beta cells, which are the cells in the pancreas that produce insulin, so that those uh, people do not have that ability to produce insulin because those cells have been destroyed by this autoimmune um, uh, process where basically the body starts to fight against its own cells and destroys those um, cells. 
Whereas um, type two being, um, you know, metabolic process, it's basically often associated with um, being overweight, obesity, um, where there's, again, this resistance to insulin. So a lot of times there's lifestyle changes that can be undertaken that people can, uh, you know, be able to manage their diabetes better by making changes in their diet, being more active and losing weight. Whereas all those things are very important for type one diabetes, they're not going to be enough to manage it alone um, for type one. So I'm old enough to know a time where it wasn't called type one and type two. They called it juvenile onset and adult onset. Mm -hmm. Is that a fair designation for old speak? Um, So that is the terminology that was used in the past. Um, I think now because uh, we have this, uh, you know, epidemic um, of younger people getting uh, diagnosed with even type 2 diabetes just because of um, sedentary lifestyle, Lifestyle diet that ends up, you know, not being a true. And then we have um, a rarer uh, type one and a half, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm going to throw that in there that, um, you know, can be... uh, people who are older that end up requiring insulin as well. Um, Some older people will get diagnosed with type one. So, um, you know, having these classifications versus age um, difference is uh, more accurate. But you are correct that in the past, uh, type one was juvenile and type two was more the adult onset. And you mentioned another important thing that I wanna make sure our listeners know about is our friend, the pancreas. Can you tell us about what this, um, I guess, much overlooked organ is responsible for and how it's linked to diabetes? Sure. So the pancreas is basically responsible for producing uh, insulin as well as uh, glucagon. Um, And so both of those are uh, uh, hormones that allow our body to um, regulate our glucose levels. So um, we have our... uh, Um, islet cells that produce the um, insulin um, and uh, specifically the the beta cells um, produce the insulin and then there's alpha cells that produce something called glucagon and again they work in tandem to regulate um, glucose in um, people who don't have diabetes and when we have diabetes they're not functioning uh, quite uh, um, as well as they should. And because of that, um, again, we get elevations in glucose and then sometimes more difficulty um, managing um, if the sugars go down too low. Mm-hmm. And the pancreas. Oh, go, go ahead. I, I apologize. I, I stepped uh, so on So the pancreas lip. also produces other enzymes to help us um, uh, regulate uh, or not regulate, but metabolize um, protein and uh, fats and um, uh, carbohydrates as well. Um, so that's uh, different enzymes that they produce in order to break down, um, you know, those uh, nutrients in our, our body mm-hmm. and our stomach. And the, oh, okay, um, Dan's giving me the signal. <laughs> um, we're going to come back and I want to continue the discussion. I think we're, we're starting to lay a foundation here and a little background for understanding diabetes and all the options that we're going to talk about. We will come back for more conversation on Health 411 after these brief underwriting announcements. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We are recording from the Digital Bronx Studios. Welcome back to Health 411. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp, and I am having a conversation today with Dr. Sherry Gillis-Funderbuck and Laura Morin from Capital Health. 
Both Dr. Funderbrook and Laura Morin are part of the endocrinology and especially the diabetes education system at Capital Health, and they run a lot of classes. And I'm, I suspect some of the questions I'm asking and some of the things are part of the classes that you hear. And at the end of the last segment, um, I asked about the pancreas and sort of what its normal role was. And we got the, the overview is that the, the pancreas is connected to the digestive system and it puts things into your GI tract that help your body deal with the glucose that you need to eat. Um, and glucose levels, uh, if they get too high and stay too high for uh, extended period of time, that's something that we call diabetes mellitus. Is that sort of summarizing it in a nutshell? Yes. And there, there could be a lot of reasons for that. And we heard that there are two main kinds of diabetes. One reason is that your, your, your glucose levels can stay high in your blood because your body doesn't produce insulin. And insulin is what? I'm going to ask Laura, what is insulin and what do, how is it connected to this blood glucose thing? Insulin is a hormone that is produced by the, the pancreas. And I usually liken insulin to a key. And I say you have this sugar in your bloodstream and it is your energy source in your body and everything needs that sugar source. But in order for the sugar, the glucose to get out of your bloodstream and into the body cells, it needs insulin and insulin kind of trails behind the sugar in the bloodstream waiting for that body cell to need some energy. And insulin goes over like a key to unlock cell doors. And when that door opens, then the glucose, the sugar can leave the bloodstream, enter into those body cells. Um, for energy. So insulin is, is the key player here in this situation. So is it fair to say that uh, insulin is needed uh, to activate the glucose transporter to get it into cells? That's exactly. the, and that's fair. And then two things can happen. One is your body stops producing insulin from an autoimmune sort of attack we talked before. But the other thing we talked about that the Dr. Funder talked about was insulin resistance. So how does, is insulin resistance related to the, so the, the steps you just described? So in insulin resistance, uh, those keys, if you will, those insulin hormones are being produced. It's just that the body cannot utilize them. So it's like the key doesn't fit the keyhole anymore. So the glucose is stuck in the bloodstream and it can't move out. And so in this particular situation, blood glucose levels are rising um, at the same time that the pancreas is overproducing these ineffective, if you will, keys. So does that mean that people who have insulin resistance are producing fewer insulin receptors or are they producing insulin receptors that have some sort of mutation or alteration to them so they're no longer sensitive to insulin that's there yeah they're no longer sensitive to the insulin that is there so our our job is to improve insulin sensitivity and that's one of the things we teach during class cool well how does that happen what physiologically happens in the pancreas to take this normal biological process and stop it from working you want to take that one, Dr. Gillis? <laughs> so, so basically, um, for type two, the insulin is being produced. It's basically at the cell cellular level that the uh, glucose receptor or, or the insulin um, receptor is not being responsive to the insulin. And so, uh, basically, that can be a number of um, you had mentioned earlier. It actually can be um, a number of reasons. I had said that we lump it all together as far as type two, but.
but there might be some people with type 2 that there actually is a defect in the, the insulin receptor. And so that's why there's partially, you know, a, a, a problem. And so a lot of times these are our type 2 patients who may not necessarily be overweight and that you see that there's a problem. Um, others may just, uh, like you said, may not have as, as many receptors to uh, begin with. Um, these are all things that we lump into type 2, but there's probably, again, variations um, because of genetic uh, predispositions that make um, uh, one of these more of uh, a problem than others. And then otherwise, it's kind of just the typical insulin resistance, that just the, um, the metabolic syndrome, the increase in um, uh, um, uh, free radicals that increase uh, insulin resistance uh, that basically are not allowing the receptors re to respond to the insulin and then glucose just continue to rise. So it sounds like if somebody presents and has the blood work of uh, chronically high glucose levels, you don't know as a physician what the underlying mechani mechanism is. Um, and so like uh, uh, giving insulin to somebody would sometimes work and sometimes not work. So how do you figure out what's the appropriate path when somebody presents? So giving insulin will always work, um, you oh, know, regardless. Even, uh, even but, in somebody uh, who has some defects in their insulin receptors, if you give an... Uh, yes. Okay. Uh, so basically, so even if there is a defect, so they just may require more insulin. Um, so generally, we can always give just increase, increase, increase insulin and uh, you know, still have it be uh, effective. Um, you know, again, kind of getting into the, um, the uh, weeds here, but you know, sometimes there's issues that even antibodies that are, are there that um, kind of um, negate the um, insulin that you're giving. And so you have some insulin resistance related to that. Um, but it is that generally we can tell um, by, um, you know, so how somebody presents, like did they present an acidosis, which can happen in both type 1, type 2, but we see it more so in type 1. Um, their age can be a factor that we can determine if it's type 1 versus type 2. Um, the way that they look, so is this a thin person versus someone who's overweight. So those are all factors that when someone initially presents that we can kind of help distinguish between type 1 and type 2. And then there's also labs that we can check um, for someone with type 1 that are antibodies that are often associated with that. Um, now, as far as, like you said, for like knowing what the specific issue is type 2, you're exactly right. Sometimes we don't know. Um, and so it's basically based on, you know, medications that we try and how they respond that we can kind of say, okay. Or, again, sometimes with phenotype that we can say this person, you know, probably has an issue with their... Um, Sorry their, about that. That's okay with their sugar metabolism. I'm going to fill in some words. <laughs> glucose metabolism. I'll fill in some words for you for the, for the yes. computer blip. Yeah, so, so yeah. definitely it is that, um, you know, basically we can uh, look at starting with some of our um, initial medications and then see maybe that they're not responding the way that they should. And that gives some inkling as far as what there might be the underlying cause that someone who's a type 2 that may have decreased insulin production um, from the onset versus more of the insulin resistance. So, so, so for the, the bottom line is, is if, if somebody told me to go see you as a patient because they suspected I had diabetes mellitus, there's, I, don't, I won't know right off the bat or you won't know right off the bat like the mechanism. So there's a little bit of an art of trying to figure out and how, how to manage it that's a little bit individualized even though there are general yes. patterns. 
Um, and, yes. you, and you mentioned an important word when it comes to metabolic disorders, uh, ketoacidosis. Can you tell us what that is? Sure. So um, ketoacidosis is basically when the body is trying to um, make glucose because the cells cannot get glucose. So basically, instead of the um, normal glucose going into the cells, that basically um, the body can't uh, get that. So it starts to break down um, fats, uh, proteins, and make uh, something called ketones. Um, and the ketones as a byproduct have um, acid, uh, and that acid can build up in the system and be immediately dangerous because um, uh, the body tries to get rid of that acid by um, uh, blowing it off because, you know, as we know that our pH has to be kept at a certain level. And so when um, that doesn't happen, the body tries to get rid of that and people can go into respiratory failure. They can have um, kidney um, damage because of um, poor circulation um, related to just excess uh, glucose loss because the uh, levels are so high in the blood that the kidney just has to get rid of that and um, water follows. Um, so it can be a multi-organ uh, system failure because of just not having the glucose and again, making these ketones. And so before you, before you get to the major organ failure, somebody who has ketoacidosis um, in, in, in I mean, I'm gonna say, it, it's sort of like you have all this potential energy circulating in your blood, but it can't get into the cells. So your body starts to, in a sense, break down your own fatty acids and your own muscles. And this is one of the metabolic byproducts of it. Um, and I'm going to ask a question that I've always wondered, because I don't get to talk to endocrinologists or nurse educators very often about these things. Um, and the way you're presenting, ketoacidosis is certainly something that should be avoided. Is that correct? Yes, definitely. Is it related at all to the keto diet? No, so we, we do get that question a lot. I'm not sure if Laura, you want to take that one. Um, so um, ketoacidosis is strictly related to an individual with diabetes. Um, the keto diet, though uh, high fat, high protein, um, will not lead the body into a ketoacidotic state. Even if even if you're diabetic. Um, so with diabetes, that is generally correct um yeah okay so because because basically the issue with um diabetic ketoacidosis is the lack of insulin um and so even when someone's following a like very um a low carb diet just as long as they're type one and they're they're still taking their insulin um they're not going to go to ketoacidosis now that being said if someone's sugars are so um low that they then don't take their insulin um, then they can develop um, uh, a, a they can develop ketoacidosis because uh, the real type of DKA or diabetic ketoacidosis because again they're not taking their insulin, um, but the ketones that you get from you know following a very low carb diet um, is different than um, this because of that again um, it's a different cause. Um, of, of the production. I've always wondered that. So thank you for sharing that. Um, we are going to have to take a break for some underwriting announcements, and then we will continue our conversation about diabetes. So we're right back on Health 411 after these underwriting announcements. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all-new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We are 
recording at the Digital Bronx Studios at Ryder University, and you're listening to Health 411. We are having a conversation today with Dr. Sherry Gillis Funderburk and Nurse Laura Morin from Capital Health. Both Dr. Funderburk and Nurse Morin are part of the endocrinology and diabetes education at Capital Health, and we are talking about diabetes. And so far, we've talked about some of the underlying cause and what's happening in the physiology of somebody who presents with diabetes mellitus. And um, I want to ask um, either one of you take the ha handle it. Now, diabetes is sort of a, a, a in pandemic portions. It's all over the world. It affects all sorts of people. Does it affect all people equally? Are there are there some people more sensitive or more more uh, uh, more likely to get it than other people? So, so definitely there is um, an increase uh, just based on age. Um, there's also an increased uh, ethnicity. So um, Black, African-American are more likely, Native American, um, uh, Asian um, a population, um, and this uh, Spanish um, Latino population are more um, prone to developing diabetes. And I, I ask it because is that related to the physiology, or is that related to socioeconomic factors, do you think? And definitely a combination of both. Um, so there's definitely um, that, um, again, like you said, the just uh, genetic component of it. And then also there is uh, lifestyle, um, socioeconomic as far as what's available. Um, that's one of the big things as far as socioeconomic that I know Capital Health um, is working on with um, programs like the Trenton Health Team um, just to make um, healthier foods available. I know when I was in my training, um, my um, attending would always, always just refer to, um, you know, the foods that are available in um, um, poorer communities. Um, you know, you have your bodegos and, um, you know, the corner stores and the fast food restaurants that are available and not so much the um, fresh uh, fruits and vegetables, which we know are key in managing diabetes. So, so in, in a sense, is the onset of diabetes mellitus then related to, or is it increased in first world nations compared to nations that might not have a, the, the abundance of free and easy carbohydrates in their diet that we have here? Yeah, you know, it definitely is interesting just to kind of, uh, you know, look at diabetes, uh, you know, around the world. And, you know, one of the things that um, I have found interesting is just uh, I've gone on um, uh, missionary trips to um, Haiti where um, the rate of diabetes is uh, very high. And, you know, those uh, uh, people that I've seen there are not necessarily overweight at all, um, but it is the, the types of carbs uh, or types of foods that are available to them and that are, you know, any quantity are basically starchy foods. And so it's basically they have this predisposition predisposition to developing diabetes. And then when they develop diabetes, the food that's available to them are foods that we typically are going to, you know, want to have in small quantities when we're managing it in, in the States. Um, in the same token, I've, I've been to Ghana. And again, I see people, um, you know, where the rate of diabetes is still is high there. But again, the weight of obesity is not as high over there. And again, it just shows you that there's a genetic component. Um, but because you know, there's a lot of uh, walking, um, you know, to and from, you know, work and, um, you know, 
to see friends and family, uh, to go shopping. Um, so you don't see the obesity there, but um, again, because of diet, uh, as well as this genetic predisposition that you still see the rate of um, diabetes is high. Mm. Yeah, and I, I don't, you're making me think, and I don't expect you guys to be experts in it, but as a thought exercise, I'm wondering about the evolutionary reason diabetes exists um, mm -hmm. ac across the world, um, because humans, you know, certainly didn't evolve with food aplenty. Like I said, mm -hmm. humans didn't evolve with cars. They had to walk to go see their friends. They had to walk around their villages. Yet around the world, there's still this diabetes mellitus epidemic, pandemic mm -hmm. all over the place. And um, I'm sure there's probably a literature on that about, you know, why diabetes? Why do humans have this? And um, it's, it's a very interesting thing because it's all about, you know, carbohydrate or energy metabolism, mm -hmm. um, which is sort of cool. Um, the other thing, though, you mentioned, Dr. Farnham, is treatments. You talked about some treatments for diabetes mellitus are lifestyle, right? Um, and so, I don't know, maybe I'll throw this at you, uh, Laura. So we have lifestyle treatments, but those are, so what, what are some of the lifestyle things that uh, some, somebody with diabetes would be looking at? And I'll ask you the question up front too, are these things just for people who are diabetic or are they the general healthy lifestyle choices for anybody, even if you're not? Great question. So uh, the, the answer is um, that it's for anybody. Um, what we're looking at is generally overall healthy lifestyle, which includes proper meal planning and physical activity. And those are the two biggest things that we try to focus on, certainly in prediabetes um, and in type 2 diabetes and trying to um, get that glucose management. Well, you mentioned an interesting thing. So what is prediabetes? You put it out there. So you don't, you don't go from being completely healthy, non-diabetic, to all of a sudden you wake up one morning. It's like all of a sudden you go from being 20 years old to 21 and you go, I can drink now. Is it a binary thing like that or is there a transition state? So it's that gray area that exists between numbers, if you will, that uh, we wouldn't necessarily be concerned about. We would say is non-diabetic or normal. And then numbers that would tip us over and we would have that diagnosis of type 2 diabetes. And numbers of what are we, are we talking about here? Lab values. So mm -hmm. we would be looking at a fasting glucose, um, first and foremost. So fasting glucose less than 100 um, would be non-diabetes. 100 to 125 is a pre-diabetes range and then greater than or equal to 126 um, is a sign that we should be concerned, type 2 diabetes. And the other one, more like the gold standard, I would say, would be the um, A1C. And what does so A, A1C. What, what is A1C? Because you, you can't help but watch TV now and have, see, there's commercials for drugs that manipulate A1C. So what is right. that? So A1C is a three-month average, if you will, of blood glucose levels. Um, and it is actually a hemoglobin A1C. So we're looking at hemoglobin um, and glucose sort of, um, there's probably a better word Dr. Gillis can give, but it's sort of like a, how I explain it is glucose sort of attaching to those hemoglobin molecules. And when you're getting your lab drawn, that tube has blood in there from the past three months. And it's looking to see how much sugar glucose is stuck to those hemoglobin molecules. And that provides us a percentage form, which we can translate into an average blood sugar. So um, a hemoglobin value of less than 5.7% is a non-diabetes range. Um, 5.7 to 6.4 is that pre-diabetes pre or that gray area. And then anything greater than or equal to 6.5 is a positive sign for, for diabetes, would be a diagnosis of diabetes. 
Cool. And if somebody presents or comes to the, the classes for education um, and, and asks you, like, do you eat chocolate? <laughs> and other high-carbohydrate, high <laughs> you are educators in this world. Do you, will you guys completely avoid those kinds of things? Or what do you recommend people do? So I, I, you know, I share my lifestyle and I say that physical activity is so important, but it comes off my plate just as easily as it comes off of somebody else's to-do list. Um, so it's really about trying to do the right thing most of the time. And that's going to make the biggest impact on the body. Okay. Um, when somebody's in class, I, I can imagine you have to be very careful of this. You don't want to say you have diabetes because you chose to eat, eat the wrong foods and you weren't active enough. How do you deal with that? Because I'm sure there are some people who, I mean, it could lead to a whole bunch of, you know, psychological issues if people start to believe that. Sure. Yeah. So, so guilt is a thing that comes up absolutely in the classes. And I tell them that there are so many factors that will lead to a diagnosis of diabetes and stopping at Dunkin' Donuts for a donut every morning is not the, the end all be all. And so there were multiple other factors that led them to that. And, um, this is a moment right now where you can make a positive change and we, we can we can make some great life, lifestyle changes to help manage that. And so dwelling on what may have been a routine before um, isn't necessarily needed. Is it possible to reverse diabetes mellitus through these things you're mentioning and the things we're going to so get to So we don't later? really use the word reverse. We use the word remission. Um, so okay. um, there's a few situations of remission, but when when lifestyle changes or factors um, are don't exist where we have um, absolute um, euglycemia, then um, the diabetes will come back for sure. Yeah, and so the the, the you can't control your ethnic background, um, you can't control your age, but you can control in the sense if you're able to your exercise levels and what you choose to eat. Is, is the kind of thing. Um, and one of the things that's happening related to the, these sort of things is what, there's an explosion now of what sometimes people call fatty liver disease. Does the pancreas also get fatty? I've always wanted to ask that. <laughs> Maybe Dr. No, Fonderbach, no. you're, you're the one to ask because th these things are all related. Yeah, we is, talk about, you know, metabolic sy yes. syndrome. Um, visceral fat, but the pancreas is not something, uh, you know, talk about as far as, um, you know, uh, fat deposition. So it is, you know, pretty much the liver and then just the effect that that has um, as far as that, uh, you know, inflammatory okay. process um, that's associated again with insulin resistance and high blood pressure, uh, low good cholesterol, elevated, elevated fats in the, um, the body. Um, but yeah, so we don't, we don't really talk about, um, fat deposition into the pancreas. I've always wanted to ask that. And like I said, I don't get to talk to experts very often. So thank you for filling that in. Um, it's is a good time for us to take a, a quick pause for some underwriting announcements. We'll be right back with Health 411. You're listening to 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. There's no appointment needed for this doctor's visit. Now back to the all new Health 411, underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. 1077 The Bronx, 1077thebronc.com. We are Recording from the Digital Bronx Studios, welcome back to Health 411. I'm Professor Jonathan Karp, and I am here with two of the experts from Capital Health Medical Center, Dr. Funder Burke and Laura Morin, our 
part of the endocrinology, diabetes treatment and education efforts at Capital Health. And Dan, you had you wanted to start off this segment with a question. Yes. Yeah, so. What are the actual signs and symptoms of diabetes? And is there a difference between the symptoms of type 1 and type 2 and even maybe type 1 and a half diabetes and also prediabetes? You mean symptoms other than the blood work? Yes, stuff. like actual physical symptoms. What, like, might, what, what, what might somebody notice yes. without having to have a blood with, without a sure. vampire coming? <laughs> so uh, we call them polys. So basically uh, increased urinary frequency, um, increased thirst, um, then also people can have blurry vision, um, can lose weight, um, sometimes can end up having like numbness, tingling in their um, extremities, uh, fatigue. Um, those are the uh, more common symptoms that we uh, think of. Is that what people usually present with and then they find out later on, oh my God, you have diabetes or prediabetes? So definitely when the sugars are very elevated, that will be um, the most common symptoms that people will say that they've been experiencing. But uh, most of the time when the sugars are just very mildly elevated, you will not know unless you're getting um, tested. And so that's why it's very important if you do have risk factors, which again could be age, could be ethnicity, could be uh, related to uh, weight, um, family history that you do want to make sure that you're seeing your um, primary care provider regularly and that they're ordering um, the appropriate test to screen for diabetes. And just to be clear, if a middle-aged person like me walked in and said, I have to get up several times a night to pee, is that the urinary increased frequency you're talking about? Or that could be something completely different. <laughs> <laughs> both. It, it could it could be something completely different, but it could be a symptom of uh, elevated glucose as well. So definitely, in addition to maybe telling you your prostate yeah, checks, or you know, uh, glucose would be something I would want to check as well. So right. why would why would diabetes kind of increase urinary frequency? So basically, because the glucose can't get into the cells, it's you know in your um, blood in very high levels, and so when it passes through the kidneys, the kidneys only able to reabsorb a certain amount. So once it gets above that amount, then it just starts to pour into the um, into the kid into the urine, and glucose is an osmotic factor, so it brings water with it, mm. and so that's what causes the urinary frequency. And then often people uh, then that will. Um, uh, um, stimulate the thirst center and so then people become very thirsty and unfortunately they don't know they have diabetes so they start drinking a lot of juice soda gatorade to try to quench their thirst mm -hmm. and then their glucose just keep going up higher and it's just a vicious cycle mm -hmm. can you cure diabetes so right now we do not say that we cure diabetes um laura had mentioned earlier mm -hmm. about remission and so definitely some people who've had um just you know very uh Good lifestyle changes. They're able to um, get their sugars and back into normal ranges without medication. Um, definitely, some people have had bariatric surgery are able to um, get their numbers back into uh, normal ranges without medication. But we still don't say a, a term of curing diabetes, um, and more so this term re remission, so which is relatively new, actually. Yeah, because I heard of a case where I think in the UK a man was quote-unquote, cured of diabetes via an, ex an experimental stem cell treatment. I don't know if you've heard of that. Okay, and so those are definitely things that they, um, you know, research is ongoing now um, regarding uh, stem cell tra uh, transplants, doing um, islet cell transplants, uh, but none of that is, uh, you know, available mm -hmm. at this time in any kind of, um, you know, standard fashion. So 
um, yeah, again, the, the as a whole, continues. there's not not a cure. Gotcha. What, what are some of the, the the pharmaceutical treatments that are out there available? And Dr. Funderburg, how do you choose which ones to give patients? Because there are, I think, hundreds of them now. Yeah. So not quite hundreds, but there is a lot. There are a lot. Are a okay. Lot. Uh, I, ma I made that. I made that up. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I know but, there, this. but there definitely is compared to you know um, even I would say uh, thirty years ago a lot more treatment options that we have available. So for type one, it's pretty easy. You know, it's basically insulin. So um, that is uh, what we need. The way we give it, there's various forms, uh, but insulin is going to be um, life-sustaining. Um, for type two, there are, and I'm just going to like draw quickly out of my hat now, and I think probably about eight to nine classes of diabetes medication. Um, and there are going to be some newer ones coming out, uh, hopefully in the, um, in the not-so-distant future. Um, and so there's basically medications that we have had for a very long time and then some that are you know, more been around for like maybe the last 10, 15 years. And at this point, our goal is really to, because we know that the underlying problem for most people with type 2 diabetes is insulin resistance, that um, what we want to target is that insulin um, resistance and try to use medications that improve the insulin um, sensitivity and not necessarily just make the um, pancreas produce um, more insulin. Um, because again, uh, initially the issue is not that the pancreas is not producing insulin, it's that the cells are resistant to it. So, so anything it, that we can do to yeah. reduce the amount of insulin required in order to get the um, glucose into the cells, that's probably gonna help um, uh, preservation of the pancreas. It's gonna help with um, weight um, uh, maintenance or management. Um, you're going to uh, reduce the risk of having hypoglycemia, which is low glucose. Um, and so that's really the target of um, newer medications, uh, what we're looking at. I, so um, I'll, I'll confess a little bit. My father was diabetic. Uh, so I grew up in a diabetic household, but luckily my brother and I are not. Um, and at that time, this is years ago, because he's, he's passed away, um, there, there was a family of drugs that used metformin. And there was like a big mm -hmm. controversy in the, in, the, in the endocrinology community, does metformin work? Where, where is the world now in terms of that thinking? Yep, so metformin works. Um, I know some of the newer recommendations are uh, getting away from um, maybe recommending metformin as first line now and going to some of the newer medications, which I think for a lot of people is gonna be cost prohibitive. So, you know, we're still definitely using metformin um, as uh, for most people as first line for someone with type two. Um, the fenformin was the one that initially um, was having uh, issues. It's off, been off the market for, I, uh, I think, shortly after it came on the market just because of the um, lactic acidosis that it can cause. But yes, metformin is actually an insulin sensitizer. It decreases um, the liver's production of glucose and um, improves uh, insulin sensitivity um, in the cells. And so that, at this point, uh, I would say the vast uh, majority of patients with type 2, that would be the initial medication. Okay, excellent. And with, so when you, when you say some of the newer treatments, are these some of the glucagon-like peptide stuff that you see advertised on TV now? Is that what you yes. mean by some of the newer things? And so how do, how do they work? Because early on in, in one of the earlier episodes, you said, when I said, what does the pancreas do? You said, not only makes insulin, but makes glucagon. And now they're giving glucagon-like peptides as sort of the medicine um, for treatments. How do, those, how do those guys work? 
So basically, the they're called GLP-1 agonists, and so they um, help by delaying how quickly the stomach empties. Um, they decrease uh, glucose, um, uh, glucose production by the liver, and they also improve the release of insulin from the um, uh, pancreas in related relationship to the foods that you eat. And so they work in those mechanisms in both reducing the glucose um, because there's some counter activity with it. You don't have a risk of having hypoglycemia with those medications and they help with weight loss. Um, so it's kind of like the um, perfect, uh, uh, you know, uh, medication for us because you're lowering insulin resistance. You're not having a risk of low sugar. You're lowering um, weight um, or getting weight loss with this medication and improving the glucose control. And when you say l lowers glucose, that's blood glucose you're talking about? Yes. Mm -hmm. And so if glucose levels go down related just to physiology, does it mean that the cells are taking up more of it or is the body excreting it? Uh, the cells are taking up more. Okay. So there is a medication that um, that does cause the kidneys to excrete the glucose. So that is another medication that we have that actually is not acting on insulin um, sensitivity um, and it's not uh, making the pancreas produce insulin. It's basically just uh, making your uh, kidneys spill the glucose oh, at a much uh, lower level than it normally would. And what What family of drugs would that be? Uh, those are called the SGLT2 transport inhibitors. So those are commercials you might have seen for Jardians or for Sega and Vacana. Oh, pretty cool. Yes, I have seen those commercials. They, they, I guess they target the sedentary people in front of TVs like me who, 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 who watch sports instead of actually doing it. <laughs> I'm, making, I'm making fun of I'm sorry. Uh, I have to ask, though, too, in your practice, uh, even in the education of people who are presenting with diabetes, um, how has the COVID-19 pandemic influenced like what you guys are doing? Laura, you want to take that from your end? Sure. So with regard to our diabetes education program, we were a fully in-person operation and we quickly learned Zoom and uh, we became a, a online Zoom uh, program, which um, for a not so tech savvy person as myself was a little bit of a learning curve, but we, we were all there and we were all in it together and um, we had great response. Um, lots of people, different ages um, who were able to participate and um, we literally jumped in we were down one month only um with our program and we jumped right back in oh, and um, we've been quite su successful um in our program cool and i have one last question because dan is telling me we're sort of running <laughs> starting to run out of time is um one of the things here capital health is in new jersey is um recreational marijuana is, is marijuana is decriminalized now is there any link between diabetes and the use of cannabis products I'm just, I'm just curious. Hmm. That that's a stump for me. I'm not, I'm not sure the answer to that question. So you, um, you collect data, I, and we'll I would see. Say that some people use, uh, you know, potentially uh, marijuana for neuropathy um, mm -hmm. as a, a treatment for that. Um, that can happen for uh, a diabetes related complication, but 
I'm not familiar with the um, you know, tie between the two. Besides, you know, giving you the munchies and making, <laughs> well, making bad lifestyle choices <laughs> of what, what, you, what you munch on. <laughs> right. Excellent. Um, unfortunately, we with that, that is a good light way to end the, end the program. Um, I want to thank our guests today, Dr. Sherry Gillis-Funderbrook and Laura Morin from Capital Health. Thank you so much for being guests today on Health 411 to talk about diabetes and diabetes management. You guys have been great. This is 1077 The Bronx and 1077thebronc.com. We are recording live from the Digital Bronx Studios. Thank you for listening to the Health 411 program. This program is part of Capital Health and Rider University's efforts to bring people together to address issues associated with all aspects of health and healthcare. If you have questions and or comments about this program or want to make suggestions for future broadcasts, please email us at health411 at rider.edu. Thanks again, guys. It's been great guests. Thank you so much. Thank you. Remember, you have a doctor's appointment scheduled for every Sunday at 10 a.m. Don't miss the all-new Health 411 with Dr. Jonathan Karp and our expert medical guest from Capital Health. You can listen to Health 411 anytime on demand. Go to 1077thebronc.com slash health411 to listen to past episodes or tune in every Thursday at 9 a.m. to hear the weekend rewind edition of Health 411. Health 411 on 1077thebronc is underwritten by Capital Health, Minds Advancing Medicine. Capital Health is the region's leader in providing progressive quality patient care with exceptional physicians, nurses, and staff as well as advanced technology.